Hello ladies, it is so good to be back with you again this morning. I've missed you all. <laughs> Since uh, I last saw you, um, I've flown 6,000 miles away to London for um, the annual three-week ministry trip and then the 3,000 miles back. We had um, more than 21 meetings and a conference in the first two weeks. (laughs) And I met um, Jim Hamilton, who um, is my favorite um, commentator on the song. I met him at a conference. And um, the big surprise was England is actually having summer. (laughs) It never happened when I lived there. And it was actually hot. (laughs) Um, um, But um, hotter still is what it's going to get in here. No, ladies, no, ladies, not that kind of hot. The hot that comes from the heat of your brains working. There is so much biblical theology in this chapter. Um, So I hope you've brought your brains with you this morning. And while you're turning to, in your Bibles, to Song of Songs, chapter 4, um, let's have a quick recap, as we've been apart um, for a few weeks. I'll just gallop through the first three chapters. So, in chapter 1, we saw that a special kind of king gets a special kind of response from the heart of his girl. In chapter 2, the lovers have a little disagreement. Remember that? He wants her to leave her place of comfort and security and follow her into the mountains and the challenges of life. And what does she say? Well, she says, no thanks. Um, I'm happy where I am. And some of the precious intimacy in their relationship that we saw in earlier scenes that was lost. Fortunately, our bride, she realizes her mistake, and in chapter 3, she goes searching for the one her heart loves. She searches for him until she finds him, and she vows to never let him go. And this is followed by the wedding scene in chapter 3, and we looked at that last time. And we found that the royal wedding in Song of Songs points to an even grander wedding in the future. Um, No, not the one between Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. It points us to the ultimate royal wedding um, when King Jesus, our heavenly bridegroom, will come to claim his bride, the church. And if you're a Christian today, it means you're betrothed to King Jesus and you're longing for your wedding day to him. At least, I hope you are. Now we come to chapter 4, and of course what usually follows a wedding day is the wedding night. And we're all going to need God's help for that, least of all me, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word and for this chapter in Song of Songs. And we confess how little we understand it. 
Many of us have wondered why it's even in the Bible. And so we need your help, Lord. Wash us and cleanse us afresh, we pray. Let us hear your voice. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So I wonder what your view of sex is. In 2011, the blockbuster movie Shades of Grey hit the big screens. It's um, an explicitly erotic movie, romanticising bondage, sadism, masochism, etc. By 2015, this book had been translated into 52 languages. It had sold 125 million copies around the world and set the dubious record for being the fastest selling paperback of all time in the UK. In 2016, the producers released a a sequel called Fifty Shades Darker and sadly intend to make more films in the Fifty Shades series. Now, while the author of the book would have us believe that sex is a grey matter, even the male lead in the movie is called Christian Grey. How sick is that? God is not grey on the topic at all. He's actually very black and white. And more of that later. Now I've got your attention. By the way, when I first began to study this chapter, I asked my husband what I should call it, whether I should call it um, physical intimacy or consummation or something like that for those of us with the more delicate ears. Anyway, something other than sex, I think I was hoping. Um, But he is a pastor and he said, just call it what it is. And so sex is what we're calling it and sex is where we're going in the next few minutes. It's also where the king in Song of Songs is going, but the surprise is the way he gets there. I've got three headings for you, and the first is the bride's true beauty in verses 1 to 7. The bride's true beauty. So when you think of beauty or beautiful, what do you think? Do you think of a beautiful girl and the features that she has that make her beautiful? Maybe for you, beauty is um, a lovely garden or a particular flower. You might think of a spectacular view or the ocean. We have spectacular views in Cape Town. Maybe it's the mountain. Some of you know that I love horses. But I also think giraffes are beautiful and leopards and eagles and peacocks and roses. And here in the song we have the king telling the bride how beautiful she is. Granted, what he says sounds very strange to our modern day ears because this is erotic love poetry and it was written thousands of years ago. So it does sound a bit strange, but the king is saying nothing coarse or immodest or inappropriate. And I don't think 
that these verses are literally describing what the bride looks like. They are not describing her features. Because remember the song is a poem. It's love poetry. And rather what the king is saying is how he feels about the bride when he looks at her. He's talking about her significance. So let me illustrate what I mean. Pretend the one speaking now is me. Let's take one of my images of beauty, a giraffe. And I can recall um, many times when I've been on safari in South Africa and we've stopped to watch a giraffe and I've said, hello, handsome, because they are. And by this, what I mean is that God in his infinite wisdom, has made this beautiful creature and I am filled with wonder and awe. Or something like that. Now say if in the love language of Song of Songs, I now describe my husband in a poem as handsome like a giraffe... Do you think I mean literally that my husband has a very long neck and very long eyelashes? No, of course I don't. I mean that God in his infinite wisdom has made my husband, he's redeemed him, he's given him to me as my life partner, he's a Christian, how fortunate I am. I'm talking about his real significance for me as a Christian husband living together in the world that God has made. Now in the song, creation is hugely significant to the king because he's the king. He's the king of Israel. So when he speaks about the beauty of his bride and all that she means to him, it's quite natural that he uses the language of creation. Are you with me? So in verses 1 to 3, we have doves and goats. We have sheep with twin lambs and pomegranates. In verses 4 to 6, he's talking about strong stones for building and gazelles, twins, twin fawns this time. He mentions lilies and spices. You need to use your imagination here, ladies, because this is poetry. But the king is the creation the king is describing. It's fertile and it's lush. It's aromatic. It's bursting with life, with living creatures, with vegetation. It's perfect. It doesn't sound much like the broken, messed up world we live in, does it? With its droughts and tsunamis and its infertility and its sickness, it doesn't sound like that at all. Rather, it sounds like the very first garden, the Garden of Eden, where creation was very good before we spoiled it with sin. And it should remind us, we think backwards, this poetry is is 
trying to get us to think backwards to a perfect garden, the first garden, and to think forwards to a future garden. How creation will, will one day, it'll be that again in the new heavens and the new earth, in the promised land, creation will be like that again when God makes everything new. So the king looks at his bride on his wedding night and he's speaking love poetry and she, he's saying to her, you are very precious to me, like these gardens. Now, this is very important. Try to think on the two levels again, ladies. So there's the king. There's a real human king in the poem, probably Solomon. King Israel. King of Israel in the Old Testament. A human king. And he's a type of Christ. He's pointing us to a king greater than Solomon. A king who loves us perfectly, who causes us to love him in a way we never could by ourselves. A king who's not restricted by time or place. The king of kings and the lord of lords. The king who is God. The human king in the story is pointing us to that king. So when we read verse 7, think about both kings. The king in verse 7 says, You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. This is how King Solomon sees the bride in the song. She's so precious to him She's so beautiful. She's perfection. There's absolutely no flaw in her. And it's how our heavenly bridegroom, King Jesus, sees you and me. So precious to him without a single flaw. The bride of Christ, chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Ephesians 1.3 How can God possibly see us like that with all our sin and our mess-ups and our brokenness and our scar tissue and our war wounds? How can God possibly see us like that? You know why. He can because he's paid for our lives with the blood of his own son. And if you're a Christian here this morning, this is how God sees us. This is our true significance, our true beauty is found in his son. If we're in his son, we are flawless in his sight very beautiful, very significant. If you don't perhaps feel so significant, I know that I don't on lots of occasions, lots of days, lots of times, if you don't feel so significant, 
in the circumstances that God has placed you in. Just remember that. Your significance, it's not in the circumstances. Your significance to God is in his son. God sees you and me surrounded, overlaid, enveloped, whatever word you want to use, with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's how he can say there's no flaw in you. He looks at us literally clothed with Christ and all he sees is perfection and beauty and immense value. That's how the king sees the significance of the bride in the song and it's how our heavenly bridegroom sees us. One commentator suggests this. Actually, the commentator I met in London, he suggests this, and I quote, If I were to adapt Solomon's way of speaking and use this language to speak to my wife today, I might say something like this. He's being serious. Your face is a visible expression to me of the blessing of God. Seeing you, I'm reminded that I'm redeemed and given life I don't deserve. Nothing matters to me more than Jesus and his kingdom and by God's grace our marriage enacts these most important things in the world. Our union is like a trip to the new Jerusalem where righteousness dwells. Okay. He's a man and he's a commentator. But you see the point. He's describing the beauty of his wife in the language with, with words of, of things of most value to him. So, in summary, the bride's true beauty is found by being in Jesus Christ. Then let's spend the next few moments in the second half of the chapter thinking about the king's real desire. The king's real desire. And then we'll put the two together. So the king invites the bride to go with him. We're in verse 8 now. And he says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. But come where? Well, I think you can guess where, and you'd be right. But it's way more profound than that. Flick back to the last verse of chapter 3, where the bride says, Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. So the king has been crowned and his heart was rejoicing. The king then describes the bride's true beauty in the first half of chapter 4 and the significance of her beauty to him. And if she has the beauty of a future promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, then that's pretty significant, isn't it? 
And now in the second half of the chapter, the king invites the bride to go with him into that future place. And he uses words that describe a garden. So what's going on? Keep thinking on two levels. At the human level, at the material level, sex is on the cards. But at the spiritual level, the king's desire is for a union on a far grander scale. In the second half of the chapter, ladies, the king is inviting the bride to go with him into a place that now reminds us of the temple in Jerusalem. This chapter is so rich in significance and meaning and biblical theology. Honestly, we could spend all day in it. So for the sake of time, I'll just summarize it for you. How do I get the temple from the poem? Well, the land where this temple is, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 11. It smells like the temple with cedar trees from Lebanon and various oils and spices. You know the temple was a holy place, the place where the presence of God was, where God met with his people. Are you getting where this is going? It means the king sees the bride as a symbol of a temple of a future day. He's likened her beauty and significance first to a future land and now to a future temple. And now he likens her to a garden. Verse 12. You're a garden locked up. My sister, my bride, you are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. A garden locked up. What garden is that? So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life, Genesis 3. The garden locked up is the first garden of Eden, after Adam sinned and was driven out. But there's a way back. Living this side of the cross, we know there's a way back, and the way back is a person The one who said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, we're nearly there, ladies. At one level, a human king invites his bride to complete their marriage by making love. And he chats her up with this erotic love poetry that was fashionable at the time. At another level, the king of the universe, the king above every other king, our heavenly bridegroom, 
invites his bride, the Church of God, to complete a marriage which marks the end of all human history. And the royal invitation, it comes in gold embossed poetry describing a future promised land, a future temple and a future garden. We don't have time today to talk about the many implications we could draw from this but let me say this to those of us who are married this one thing in light of what Song of Songs is saying married ladies even if you don't understand all the theology yet can you begin to see how very deeply and profoundly significant marriage is if you are married you cannot possibly despise it or disregard your spouse or anyone else's come to think of it you will not be able to speak of marriage lightly and you will not be able to sin lightly in it I speaking to myself first you will not be able to speak of marriage lightly especially your own you will not be able to sin in it no matter how hard that is sometimes and if you've been married a long time and that was me 33 years ago yesterday then by 33 years every marriage You've, in every, ma in every long marriage, praise God, then you've got a lot of stuff between you. Every marriage, every long marriage does. So how are you doing with forgiveness, ladies? You will have lots of stuff with each other. How are you doing? Because if you glimpse just a little of what this passage is saying you cannot be holding out in bitterness or resentment against your husband no matter what he's done can you and if, and if you're not married if you're not married maybe you too can glimpse just how deeply significant marriage is and you won't be able to sin against the Lord by having a low view of the marriages around you either. But you will be able to speak into your friends' lives. And you'll be able to encourage them and challenge them to do marriage in a God-honouring way. And this may be or this may not, but I say this sensitively and gently as I can. A word if there's anybody here for whom marriage and sex has been more of a nightmare than a delight. Um, I am very sorry. We don't have time today to say all the things that could be spoken into your situation. Um, that's probably a series for another year. But what I would do is very gently encourage you to keep coming into the light 
and looking to Jesus as your perfect bridegroom and king. He is the beginning and end of all human history and all God's promises find their yes in him. So meanwhile, back in the song, I think I can hear you all thinking, so Gillian, what happens next? Well, what happens next is the covenant's renewal. That's verse, chapter 4, verse 16, through to chapter 5, verse 1. Possibly you weren't expecting that, or at least not that heading. Um, so we've had the bride's true beauty, plus the king's real desire, and now we have the covenant's renewal. Let's look at it together. The bride says in verse 16, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Well, this bride, she literally wants the wind to blow so that the smell of all the wonderful spices in the land will maximize the king's pleasure. Use your imaginations, ladies. It's King Solomon's bedroom at the palace and it's filled with aromatherapy candles. (laughs) What happens next is sex. Of course it is. But so what? Do you know that Amazon has at least 190,000 190,000 titles for sale on sex. All about perfect bodies and great technique. But seriously, is that what really, what sex is really all about? Sex the way God designed it is where two people literally become one not just their bodies, but their souls as well. God has given us sex for the mingling of souls, ladies, to encourage us and point us to Jesus. To point us to the heavenly wedding night when we'll be married to our heavenly bridegroom for all eternity. And sex in this life will be great when we make even this about Jesus. And so the king says, chapter 5, verse 1, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. This is love poetry, ladies. It's very delicate language. It is a bit strange to our modern day ears, but it's very sensitive. It's full of love, full of expression. It takes nothing away from the sex that the couple enjoy. It just adds to it and makes it better. It's the kind of talk reserved for those of us who are married. This is not for public listening or public viewing or movies. 
because what the song is saying about sex is so deeply profound and glorious that only human beings made in the image of God and being conformed to the image of Christ can experience what is being spoken of here. It's saying that physical intimacy in marriage is a picture of the consummation of the relationship between Christ, our heavenly bridegroom and king, and us, his holy bride, the church. Sex is an anticipation of that great day when we will be in heaven with Jesus for all eternity if you're a Christian here this morning. And I do realise that for some this may not be the song you want to sing today and I'm so sorry. Hold on to Jesus as your ultimate bridegroom. He's got your soul in his hands. And those of you who are unhappily married or married to an unbeliever, you can experience the glory of what is being spoken about here, even if your husband may not. How's that? Well, because you know Jesus. And he's got your soul in his hands too. So as I close, let's look at the very final line of our passage. 5.1b Eat friends and drink. Drink your fill of love. Well, we're not told in the original who speaks these words, but one writer on the song suggests these words are spoken by God himself. Not the king, not the bride, the Lord himself because they're an encouragement for us to indulge in this kind of love, to indulge in the good gift of sex that God has given his people. God is saying here, go ahead, be drunk on love. I've given you this gift. I approve of it. The boundaries are there not to limit your enjoyment, but to maximize it. And this doesn't quite sound like shy, ashamed movements under the sheets, does it, ladies? God does not want us to be embarrassed about this. Rather, dare I suggest that what God has in mind here in chapter 4 of the Song of Songs is free, bold, unashamed, naked joy in sex. And that's just about as far from 50 shades as it could possibly be, isn't it? Great sex can be yours, not because you bought a few books from Amazon, but because if you're, if you're married and you're a Christian here today, God's got your soul in his hands. This is the only book you need. Great sex can be yours if you waken your soul to Jesus in this book. If you look to him and listen to him, if you love him and live for him, Tim Keller, I think as I close, he has a great phrase for sex. 
he calls it renewing the covenant. He says it this way because, and I quote, sex points to the eternal ecstasy of soul that we will have in heaven in our loving relationships with God and one another, renewing the covenant. Sex points to the eternal ecstasy of soul that we will have in heaven in our loving relationships with God and with one another renewing the covenant and that's why the kind of love described in Song of Songs chapter 4 can only be experienced by those of us who are married and those of us who are Christians because this delicate sensitive unrestrained unashamed act of physical intimacy can only be experienced in all its glory by those who will one day return to the new garden of Eden and that is surely ladies the best song ever let's pray Father, what a glorious picture you've given us of marriage and sex in this chapter in the song. We're sorry we've strayed so far from what you intended for us in this area. Please help us to think rightly about it, whether we're married or not, to renew our minds to the biblical picture of marriage depicted in the song. And may each of us long for that glorious day when we will stand before you naked and unashamed in the new Garden of Eden because of your Son, Jesus. And we pray these things in his name and for his glory. And all God's people said, Amen.